astrobiologist David Grinspoon and the search for life this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. David Grinspoon was last heard here when he joined Alan Stern to talk about their book, Chasing New Horizons, the best-selling chronicle of the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond. David has written other popular books over the years as he has continued his research at the Planetary Science Institute. Now he's been named a Lifetime Fellow of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. David will join me in a few minutes for a conversation about looking for life across our solar system and how planetary science helps us understand our own world's place in the cosmos. Then, you asked for it, the chief scientist has another cosmic arithmetic challenge for you, and Bruce has a rubber asteroid for the winner. What light through yonder prism breaks? I couldn't resist parroting that headline at the top of the February 18 edition of The Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. Beneath it is the complete visible light spectrum of our own star, and a teaser for the new article about spectroscopy that's also on our website. And then there's the truly beautiful video my colleagues have produced about the same topic. It's all at planetary.org downlink, where we also wish a happy first anniversary on Mars to Perseverance. Check out the rover's terrific accomplishments over the last Earth year. It was the announcement by the AAAS that reminded me to invite David Grinspoon back. It also led me to David's great 2003 book, Lonely Planets, that I'll have more to say about in a moment. Others have already said a lot about it. Astronomer and pioneer SETI researcher Frank Drake described it as superb. Everything is here, theories of planetary formation and evolution, the origin of life, the origin of complex life, and even the evolution of intelligence and technology. David has succeeded marvelously at producing a comprehensible, enjoyable overview of astrobiology, the epitome of multidisciplinary research. Apollo astronaut and planetary defense expert Rusty Schweikert adds, David has written the book I wanted to write, and he's done it so very well that I'll be forever thankful I never got to it. David's style is so direct, so personal, and so punctuated with delightful humor that reading this book feels like a living room conversation. Let's start our conversation. David Grinspoon, welcome back to Planetary Radio. It is such a pleasure and an honor to congratulate you on your recent election as a 2021 Fellow of the AAAS, the American Academy for the Advancement of Science. So congratulations and welcome. Thanks very much. And uh, it's great to be here, wherever here is, and uh, have a chance to talk with you some more. You say you picked up degrees in, in the two least practical things you could think of, philosophy and planetary science. But I say, thank the maker, because they enabled you to think the way you do and to share those thoughts with the rest of us. Lonely Planets, which, as I told you, I finished a couple of days ago, has profoundly affected my own thinking. And I'm now reading your 2016 book, Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. Here's what my boss, Bill Nye, says about it. In his wonderful writing style, Dr. Grinspoon spells it out. A single species is inducing more profound changes to our planet than any other organism in geologic history. It's us. 
If you have family and friends here on Earth, read this book. The Earth is in our hands. Wow. Nice work. <laughs> nice work, boss. And nice work, David. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's always nice to hear that. And I appreciate the words coming from uh, somebody like Bill. Wow. It's gratifying. I feel like planetary science does give us a unique perspective on ourselves, you know, on this planet and the, and the point of view of astrobiology, of thinking deeply about the relationship between life and its planetary home, which to me is really what astrobiology is about. It's about the relationship between a planet and its life, gives us a different cast on thinking about ourselves and our challenges as we we face the future. So to me, you know, it all, there's some some way in which it all fits together, the philosophy and the planetary science and the, the astrobiology, and then kind of worrying about how that all that can affect how we can go about trying to solve our problems as we confront the fact that, hey, we live on a planet and we are a force on this planet. We're realizing that. What are we going to do about it? You talk about planetary science, that it may be, I don't know if you put it exactly this way, the highest expression of why a multidisciplinary approach is so important in science, but especially in planetary science, and maybe even more so, little circle living inside that Venn diagram circle, astrobiology. Well, there wouldn't be any planetary science or astrobiology without an interdisciplinary approach. If you look at the history of planetary exploration, when we first started sending spacecraft to other planets, there was no such thing as planetary science. It was an interesting question. Well, who's, who's going to do the science? Who's going to interpret the data? I mean, there were astronomers and there were planetary astronomers, but what they did was look through telescopes and make drawings or photographs and spectroscopy from telescopes and try to figure out a lot about a distant object far away. And then when we're sending cameras and other instruments to get close-up data about the planets, that wasn't really a suitable activity for somebody who had only looked through telescopes their whole life. And we needed to draw upon astronomy, but we also needed to draw upon the Earth scientists because Earth science had the knowledge of of geology and meteorology, which we had to apply to other planets. So the initial science teams of the first missions were these interesting hybrids of some astronomers, but then they brought in some, some geologists and some meteorologists. And those people who I consider sort of the first generation, the people that were the, the on the science teams of the mariners, the pioneers, they had to forge this new multidisciplinary discipline of planetary science. And then I see astrobiology in a way as an extension of that. There was already this multidisciplinary effort of planetary science, but then when astrobiology became not just a sort of a fringe extension of planetary science, which it was at one point when it was exobiology and a few brave souls, Sagan and, and some others were, were daring to do it on, on the side. When, when astrobiology became uh, an accepted and embraced part of NASA and other space agencies, what you know became mainstream, it required another melding where that, that sort of multidisciplinary edifice of planetary science, which had been built up already, then incorporated biology and biochemistry and origin of life studies and all this sort of extremophile studies. Basically, it, it, it broadened the circle again to include these other disciplines, but the ground had been paved by the fact that planetary science was already this multidisciplinary collection of, of viewpoints and, and sources of expertise. We're building on an edifice of knowledge when it comes to life 
in the universe were profoundly ignorant. And so there is the danger of groupthink, where everybody's thinking about Mars and then we've got this expectation we're going to find subsurface life on Mars. And then we find something that's encouraging, a whiff of methane or hints of underground water and everyone gets excited and they go, oh, we're just around the corner from finding extant life on Mars. Well, there may be, or there may be, Mars may be completely lifeless. We tend to focus, get excited about certain areas and neglect other areas. And for a while, Titan was considered to be really off limits because it's just, you know, well, there can't be any liquid water there, uh, at least on the surface. And even if there's chemistry, it's in these weird methane lakes. And I think now there's more openness to what we call weird life and possible places like Titan. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get to talking about the clouds of Venus, which is one of my favorites. I would even go so far, and I, I talk about this a little bit in Lonely Planets, even places like, like Io. Okay, like why would you possibly consider life on Io? Well, there's liquid and there's interesting chemistry. And who says it has to be carbon? You know, there's interesting possible sulfur chemistry on Io. So um, not that I'm saying, oh, I think there's life on Io and we should go look for it. But I I definitely advocate casting a wide net. You said look for disequilibrium and lots of it. And Io would qualify. Mars, not so much. Yeah, well, Mars is an interesting case because there may be micro environments where the necessary conditions are met. We know, you know, there's some energy flow, there's some internal activity, not very much. Mars to me is an interesting test because my hunch and all anyone really has in this field are educated hunches in, in a sense, is that life requires a certain level of planetary activity, that life is a planetary property that's much more likely to endure for for billions of years, for long periods of time on a planet that's active, where there are active geological flows and active atmospheric phase changes and, and uh, geochemical flows. I mean, the Earth has its carbon cycle, its sulfur cycle, its nitrogen cycle, and Mars is just very quiescent. But I'm enough of a scientist and enough of a philosopher <laughs> of science to realize that that we really don't know. And then to me, that sets up a really interesting test. Like I'm, I'm very supportive of the search for life on Mars because it's nearby. We can search for life there. And I want to know if I'm wrong about this and Mars can support life in its current moribund state as a planet, that would be a really interesting thing to learn. Then I, I would learn that I'm completely wrong in my hunches about where life can exist in uh, the universe. And I, I, I want to know that. And also, of course, Mars has, there's every reason to believe that we may find fossils on Mars, because obviously it wasn't so moribund in its early history. Let's go to Venus. And we'll bring it right up to date, because it was only a few days ago as we speak that we learned that the Parker Solar Probe on one of its swings past Venus actually managed to cut through the clouds in visible light and show us the surface of our our hot sister. That must have been exciting for you. You've been a, a Venusophile, Venusphile, I don't know, a, a fan of Venus for a long, long time. Yeah, it's really exciting and honestly surprised me because we've known for a while that there are these bands in the near infrared that allow you to see the surface of Venus at night uh, from the thermal glow. Um, you know, the surface is hot. And it's, so it's glowing in the infrared and in, in the visible to some extent, but mostly that's completely blocked by the thick atmosphere and the clouds. But there are some wavelengths where the light makes it through enough light, makes it through a sort of in between the 
water and CO2 bands. There's some wavelengths of infrared light. And we know there's a window around one micron, which is just a little bit longward of the red edge of the visible. So it's near infrared. It's just a little bit longer wavelength than you can see. And so we've been able to image Venus at that one micron wavelength on the night side. And we've done that from the Venus Express spacecraft and, and from the Akatsuki spacecraft. But nobody thought that that extended into the visible. Then these images came out and they said, this is invisible light. And we all looked and said, no, it's not. They did something wrong. <laughs> you know. But apparently there are windows that extend a little bit into the visible more than we thought. Or their instrument is going out into the infrared a little bit more than they thought. And honestly, I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, but either way, it's very cool because you're definitely, you look at the images and it fits with the top topography of Venus that we know is there from Magellan and from other things. They're definitely seeing the surface of Venus. I know what I should have called you, a Venusian. Uh, you wrote Venus Revealed, the book you just uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago, back in 1998. 24 years later, are we finally beginning to see the attention paid to this sister world that that is so different and yet so much like us that that you and so many others want to see? I think so. Yeah, I mean it's been a, it's been a long road for uh for the the Venus freaks of the the community. Um we um we've been advocating for a long time that we need more Venus missions. I mean the history is interesting because Venus was the first place we went with spacecraft and it was the first place that the the Soviets went. You know, Mariner 2, the first ever successful interplanetary spacecraft went to Venus and there was a whole rush of Venus exploration early in the history of planetary exploration. And then it sort of stopped and the focus went elsewhere. And that's partly because Venus is an easy place to get to in terms of celestial dynamics. It's the quickest trip. It's the least amount of energy energy you need to, least amount of delta V, you know, velocity that you need to get to anywhere in the solar system. But then what we learned about it on those early missions was that once you get there, it's one of the toughest places to actually explore because you can't see the surface from orbit at least we thought until these these recent revelations. And of course, going down into the atmosphere is very forbidding because the temperature and pressure are so extreme and because the clouds are made out of concentrated sulfuric acid. So it's an easy place to get to, a hard place to do much more than sort of gawk from orbit once you get there. And especially now with the exoplanets, of which we know there are some exovenuses and which, which increase our desire to fill in these gaps in comparative planetology, that we have to go to Venus if we want to crack this, this sort of uber puzzle of how do planets work and how does Earth fit in with the other planets. We just can't keep ignoring Venus. Some of us have been making those arguments for a while, but um, they've become persuasive enough recently so that NASA's announced two new Venus missions and the European Space Agency has announced a big new Venus mission. And now Russia and India and China and even the United Arab Emirates, they're all talking about possible new Venus missions. So, and of course, the Japanese have Akatsuki, which is there now. So it's become, um, for whatever combination of reasons, it's uh, Venus has become hot again, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really excited about uh, these upcoming missions. Do you think that there is a decent chance that all of these missions, including the two NASA missions, are going to help us reveal that... Venus might once a long, long time ago, and for different reasons, have been as hospitable a place for life as Mars was a long, long time ago. There's an excellent chance that we'll answer that question. 
And I think there's a good chance that the answer will be that it was hospitable. But if it wasn't, that's, of course, really, really important for us to know. Recent models that have been done using general circulation models, the same kind of models we use to predict climate change on Earth, you know, recently we've been able to apply those to Venus really for the first time in a rigorous way. And the results point us towards thinking that Venus may have been habitable for a long time. You know, we have every reason to think that Venus had water in abundance when it was formed. And of course, it's incredibly dry today. So it seems to be a story of water loss. But the, the big question is, when was that water lost? You know, was it lost early on in a rush of evaporation and solar irradiation? Or did the oceans last for a long time and escape into space more recently? Or there's a third possibility that, that Venus never had oceans, that it was just so hot and there was so much radiation that close to the sun that, that, that the water never condensed and was lost to space before oceans ever formed. I think the, that the combination of, of all these upcoming missions will let us choose amongst those possibilities. And that is going to be great. Obviously, part of me is holding out for wanting it to have been habitable for a long time because that's just such an enticing possibility. And it is a real possibility with what we know now that Venus and Earth may have been these two next door neighbor planets that had habitable oceans for billions of years. And there could have been life evolving on Venus. There could have even been exchange of material between the two planets, carrying living organisms. Who knows? That picture is very enticing, but I also need to acknowledge that we're going there to find out, not to just confirm that enticing picture that I want to be true, but <laughs> to, you know, to possibly rule it out, which of course would be would be really, really important as far as being able to contextualize how often Earth-like planets end up having stable oceans and stable surface conditions that could facilitate life for long periods of time. You know, either way, Venus is is a big part of our learning how to how to put Earth in, in context as far as habitability in the universe. Before we finish, do you have that paragraph that I was hoping you could read from uh, Lonely Planets? It's a statement about astrobiology. Oh, yeah. The context is that I'm talking about how science, in a lot of ways, has been under pressure to be more and more pragmatic, that research needs to be justified by what it can produce commercially or practically. And that's, that's sort of been a trend in science. And then I write, swimming against this stream is astrobiology. It is not for profit and can't pretend otherwise. We explore space for reasons that are romantic and idealistic. The universe beckons. We want to go because we want to know. With astrobiology, there is no fronting that the rationale is practical or the benefits material. We do it out of our curiosity and longing to satisfy the human need to know the cosmos that spawned us. Fancy that, a scientific movement that is justified on fundamentally spiritual grounds. Wow. David, I so look forward to you coming back. We can talk about SETI. We can talk about natural philosophy. We can talk about life, the universe, and everything. But thank you uh, for this conversation. And again, congratulations on uh, being named a fellow of the AAAS. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to talk with you, and I'd be happy to come back anytime and talk about any of those topics. <laughs> astrobiologist and author David Grinspoon. 
David and I talked for nearly an hour about everything from growing up with Carl Sagan and Isaac Asimov as frequent house guests to why we shouldn't exclude even some of our solar system's least likely locales from the search for life. You can hear it all at planetary.org slash radio and from the major podcast providers. I'm Planetary Society Chief Advocate Casey Dreyer. Are you interested in our day of action to advocate for space, but can't commit to a full day of congressional meetings? Or do you live outside the United States? Either way, I have great news for you. You can go to planetary.org slash dayofaction and pledge to take action with us on March 8th. We'll provide you with easy, effective actions you can do on your own time from anywhere in the world. That's planetary.org slash dayofaction. Thank you. Greetings all, Bill Nye here. Missions of discovery are underway right now thanks to the Planetary Society, the world's largest independent space advocacy organization. The fight for space science and exploration never ends. You can help us make sure our representatives understand how important this work is. There are several ways to get involved. We've got all the information you need at planetary.org slash take action. That's planetary.org slash take action. Thanks. It is time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's the chief scientist. That's Bruce Betts. He's going to tell us about the night sky, and uh, we'll have a contest and do some other fun stuff. Welcome back. Hey, good to be back, Matt. Hi. Hi. For those of you hanging out in the pre-dawn, it's Planet Party Central over in the east. We've got uh, super bright Venus and below it, reddish Mars. And on the morning of the 27th, the moon, crescent moon, will be hanging out with those. And if you've got a really clear view to the horizon, you can go to the lower left of those planets, and there's Mercury and then yellowish Saturn. Mercury will get harder to see. Saturn will get easier as it rises up in the sky. In the evening sky, it is planetless. Still a fun place, lots of good stars. Of course, I've been mentioning the constellation Orion. Uh, If you check out under Orion's belt is Orion's sword, Three, what look like three stars, for those who aren't aware. The middle one is actually the Orion Nebula. It's kind of fuzzy if you look at it even with your eyes, and uh, certainly with binoculars or a telescope. This week in space history, it was 1966 that Gemini 9's primary crew of Bassett and C were tragically lost in a plane crash. Uh, But in happier news, in 2007, after about a year-ish of travel, New Horizons flew by Jupiter and got cool data at Jupiter as it readied for its long journey to Pluto. Random space. So the supermassive, supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy is thought to be have the mass equivalent to 4 million suns. Bonus space fact. This uh, is called Sagittarius A star, written as an asterisk. And uh, it was originally part of a radio source that got isolated. There was Sagittarius A and then Sagittarius A star because one of the co-discoverers, Robert Brown, said in a 1982 paper because the radio source was exciting and excited states of atoms are denoted with asterisks. Let us move on to the trivia contest. I asked you, What Olympic athletes appear in pictures on the Voyager Golden Record? How'd we do, Matt? People just love this. Uh, Elijah Marshall in Australia. Damn, Bruce, you guys weren't kidding when we called you 
master of the rabbit hole, where do you discover this stuff? (laughs) Comes out of my freaky brain and then out of the internet and straight to your rabbit holes at home. Well, let's fill that rabbit hole. Uh, Here is, (laughs) he's back, our our poet laureate, uh, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Olympic athletes, five in all, appear on Golden Records, riding out with Voyager. In analog, they're pictured. Borisov, Roberts, Su Wen Ho, all sprinting with Moorosi, and working on the balance beam, a stroboscopic Rigby. Kathy Rigby. She's actually got several images, right? Because it's stroboscopic. You see her at different positions along this this uh, routine that she was doing on the uh, on the balance beam. Very cool. Indeed, very cool. Uh, she counts as one athlete, though. Just just to be clear. <laughs> Okay, so five athletes. And uh, we have a winner. She has not won in uh, just over two years, but she is a past winner. Courtney Katz in Pennsylvania provided Valerie Borzov, Matsapi Morosi, Kathy Rigby, Edwin Roberts, and Sue Wen-Ho. And four of them, I guess, all in in one race? Yes, all in the, uh, of course, it was heat three of round one of the 1972 Olympic men's 200-meter race, and the four captured running in that race, and then Kathy Rigby, as you mentioned, uh, on the balance beam. Courtney, congratulations once again. You are going to be getting a copy of this brand-new book, Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong. (laughs) And it's by, and it's hard to say what he does, Meteoriticist? Meteoriticist. Oh, I like that. Thank you. Say it again. <laughs> Meteoriticist. Greg Brenecka. It's a fun book. I think I'd said before that he uh, did some illustrations for it, little hand-drawn illustrations. And it's about the significant role that uh, meteorites have played and continue to play in our life. So again, congratulations, Courtney. We're ready for another. Well, you claimed that people wanted another math question. It's not complicated math, but you do need to do combine research with math. We're going into Messier objects and Messier numbers, the deep sky objects that were first compiled by Charles Messier. And here's your your math question. What is the answer to the following math problem? First, take the number of objects published in Charles Messier's 1781 catalog. There's a lot of subtlety here, but it's the number of objects published. And multiply that by the Messier number of the Triffid Nebula. (laughs) Now subtract the Messier number of the Starfish Cluster. And that's what I'm looking for. Number of objects published in this catalog, Messier number of the Triffid Nebula multiplied, and then subtract off the Starfish Cluster Messier number. How do they enter? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest, or you can find it through the following mathematical algorithm. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, for the three of you who will enter this uh, this time, no, <laughs> prove me wrong. Prove me wrong, because we're going to add to that algorithm a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid, for anybody who works their way through that uh, that bit of math that has been handed to us by the chief scientist. That'll be coming your way, but you've only got until the 2nd. That'll be Wednesday, March 2nd at 8 a.m. Pacific time to answer this one for us. Wow. Okay. No, I'm glad you did this. And uh, we're done. 
All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what Matt's Messier number might be. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. It's a mess of Messier numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Extra points if you can identify which uh, cartoon character I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, he's Bruce Betts. He's no cartoon character. He's the chief scientist of the planetary. <laughs> <laughs> Nope. Who joins us every week here for What's Up? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its lively members, Marco Verda, Jason Davis, and Ray Paletta. Our associate producers this week, Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.